So what I'm going to talk about tonight in a variety of ways are the kinds of difficult mind states that arise in practice in general and life in general, specifically in metta practice, and some antidotes, ways of working with those mind states. But I want to begin by uh, putting those difficult mind states into a somewhat larger context. And I want to start with some of the questions that came up um, early this morning and during the day throughout some of the question periods. And one of the questions that came up in the first sitting this morning, remember, is someone asked about, is this a constructed mind state? Uh, Are we making something up that isn't really there? It's a tremendously crucial question because uh, it has to do with a question that comes up in lots of people's uh, minds as they do this practice, which in certain ways seems like a very simple practice. People begin to ask in various ways, is this for real? Could this really be true? Uh, It's a strange thing for a bunch of adults in a world full of all kinds of difficult and pressing problems that we could be out addressing in some immediate and direct physical way for us all to be sitting quietly in a room together for a week wishing. (laughs) And it's a really important question to say that will it make a difference in the long run? Suppose I wish here all week And suppose I wish so fervently and so sincerely and with such concentration that I alter the state of my mind and I feel filled with rapture and loving kindness and compassion. Suppose I feel all full of that at the end of the week because I'm making this wishing and by means of the wishing the mind is becoming more and more concentrated. When I leave, I can't keep on this constant wishing because I need to do my whole life. Is it going to go away? Is it going to make any difference that I did that? That's why it makes a, it makes a, it's really important. It makes a difference, that question about whether this is a constructed state or not. Is it something that we're artificially going to put together that requires constant maintenance for it to be there? Or, and I think the or is what is the truth, is this a way of introducing us to the fact that this is not a constructed mind state at all? That this is fundamentally an introduction into what's the truest sense of ourselves. When people say, am I going to go home and find out that I'm my old self again? I think we're going to find out who we are, our real selves again, or maybe for the first time. And that in a certain way, as we feel we construct something, the construction is a bridge to get to where we truly are. We say, oh, This is who I am. It's a bridge, in a sense, coming back home to what we really are. I love Sharon's definition the other day of best home. The fancy words for uh, the Brahma Viharas are um, divine abodes. But those are, uh, sound like they're someplace else. Best home is right here. And this is really building a bridge to come home to who we really are. I'd like you to have the notion of of, a visualization that uh, is very useful for me. And uh, don't think the mind actually looks like a bowl, but if you imagine that there's a bowl of equanimity or a space of equanimity, or a vast space of equanimity, a vast bowl of equanimity that's just there. And then out of that, when um, met with a neutral situation, 
from the great um, vast depths of equanimity comes forward goodwill and metta and good wishes. That's just how equanimity responds in the face of a neutral situation. In the face of a painful situation, a situation of despair or pain, suffering, out of a ground of equanimity arises compassion. That's what comes, the natural response of equanimity. It's not indifference, it's compassionate response. Out of that vast reserve of equanimity, which is fundamentally the nature of mind, when met with some joyful, fortunate circumstance, equanimity comes forward in the form of altruistic joy, sympathetic joy, delight in the well-being or the good fortune of others. And altogether we call those four different qualities of mind the Brahma-viharas, the divine abodes, metta, which is goodwill, karuna, which is compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, and upayaka, equanimity, out of which it all comes. Just for a moment, imagine that that's the nature of mind, that's the nature of consciousness, that's who we are in our truest essence, that's what we are. Blocking this essence from appearing to us and from reflecting out are clouds that come and go just as clouds come and go and obscure the sky. The sky is always vast and spacious and sometimes it gets so cloudy that you can't see that it's blue behind there. Sometimes you can see blue and patches of clouds here and there. Sometimes it gets so cloudy that you can't see the blue behind it. But you know it's there, even when it's all clouded over. Kind of wait for the clouds to pass. But the sky is always the sky. It's always just as it is. Always vast, always spacious, always just as it is, with clouds coming and going that make it more or less difficult for us to see its true nature. Let's assume, just for this discussion, so it's a way of visualizing, working with the difficult mind states, that that's just how it is with the mind. That clouds blow in and blow out. Sometimes they fill up the whole mind. And even though the essence of mind is space which reflects in goodwill and compassion and altruistic joy and rests all of them in that great vast sea of equanimity that we don't see it all the time. Certainly doesn't feel like that all the time. How many people today had a moment of desire? wanted something other than what was there. Think, think. Put up your hand if you had a moment of desire, okay? Put up your hand. A moment, a moment, <laughs> just a moment, okay? Even one little moment, okay? Wonder what's for lunch, mm, okay? Put up your hand if you had a moment of aversion, something you didn't like during the day, okay? Put up your hand if you felt sleepy or cloudy or foggy at any point during the day, okay? Put up your hand if you felt restless at any point during the day. Okay. Put up your hand if you had at least one doubt thought during the day. Okay. Probably they're not all there this minute. They blew in, they blew out, they came, they went. Sometimes you took them a little seriously, sometimes less seriously, probably. What we do in this practice is by steadfastly developing samadhi, developing concentration, we are developing the natural antidotes to those unpleasant, transient 
mind states. You see from everybody putting up the hand that everybody has those mind states. Put up your hand if you had all five. Okay. So that covers that. So now we are clear that everybody has everything. They are not naughtinesses of the mind. They're not because everybody is a bad meditator. Uh, they are the natural ebb and flow and wax and wane of the energies of the mind. They just come and go. They're just energies of the mind dressed up in stories that frighten and confuse us. We often make a big deal out of them. In this morning, there was another wonderful question where somebody asked, what's the difference between the metta practice and vipassana practice, or how do they interpolate together, or how do they augment each other? And um, Joseph's answer was wonderful. And uh, I wanted to say, continuing that answer, having to do with the clouds, that you could think about vipassana practice, the practice of seeing clearly, is the practice of seeing through the clouds that they're just clouds. They're just clouds. They're not anything solid or permanent or anything to become alarmed about. They're the natural clouds that come and go in the mind. Metta practice is a way of building up a certain kind of power of mind that radiates certain kinds of energies, and we'll come to talk about them tonight, certain kinds of qualities that dissolve those clouds of the mind. So you could, if you want to, think of vipassana practice as the practice of seeing through the clouds, and metta practice as the practice of dissolving the clouds. In any event, in both cases, we come to the place of seeing clearly. We come through metta practice to see clearly as clouds dissolve. There's every possibility of having insight arise and coming to enlightenment. As we see through the clouds, through vipassana practice, there's every possibility to come to the kinds of joy and happiness that are part of metta practice. So there's a certain way in which more and more I think that these practices are not so different at all, even though the techniques of them are different. It's really important I, for me to say that in the beginning, because one of the doubts that comes up for people I know is, should I be doing this? I was a really happy Vipassana meditator, and it really made sense for me to do that, and I understood why I was doing it, and I was going to get enlightened, and now all of a sudden here I am, saying these phrases, and I don't have the biggest confidence that it's going to do anything or that it's going to work. Maybe I should go back to that old practice. There's a certain way in which they're not very much different from each other, although technically there is this difference. We do them a little bit differently. When you think about how we ought to be here, it's amazing that hindrances arise at all, isn't it? Here we are. We come away to a more or less idyllic circumstance. We're in a warm place with good food, away from all of the um, intrusions of our daily life. No one can telephone us, or no one even can speak to us. So in fact, we are totally protected from all kinds of intrusions for a whole week, at least, and some people for more. And more or less, it's comfortable here. So maybe sitting is on, and sitting on the floor might not be so comfortable in the first few days. But even in metta instructions, the instructions are sit comfortably. So you can move if you're not comfortable. So it's really uh, important for us to begin to realize that even if we make our circumstances as comfortable as they can be, that's really the instructions. Make yourself comfortable. Relax. All of the energies that come and go in the mind will continue to come and go in the mind and make us uncomfortable in the mind, in the body. Sometimes we'll feel body uncomfortable. We'll feel um, irritable without a story or lustful without a story 
or confused without a story or restless without a story. Sometimes they'll have whole stories with them and that's really where the uh, hindrance energies get to disguise themselves because they disguise themselves in stories. And then the stories seem so compelling that we get involved in the stories and we forget really that they're just energies underneath there creating a story or promoting a story. Lots of times people are away from all the stories of their life, the worries that they left behind or the life that they anticipate or actually the stories of their way past life come up naturally in the quiet. The peculiar way in which um, in the space of a little bit of composure all of our life stories come up again, present themselves to us, also disrupting the composure of the mind. So it's important to see that everything that comes up and passes and comes up and passes with whatever flavor, if we can maintain a certain composure around it, we can really hold what comes up. Say, this is a passing cloud in the mind. It's not really to have a mind that's cloud-free because that's not a possibility. It's just in the nature of mind to fill of energy and empty of energy, to have grasping energy and aversive energy, and slippery energy, really, which is the energy of doubt. That's just how minds operate. What we really can do is see them clearly and work kindly and compassionately with their presence. Because all of the hindrances, when they're present, are uncomfortable. And the compassionate response to the hindrance is really metta. The really the first response to all of the hindrances. I think to myself, when any sort of hindrance attack happens, I'm in pain. And then I do metta for myself. That's the most immediate, reasonable, sensible antidote to any kind of hindrance in the mind. I'm in pain. I wish I were comfortable. May I be peaceful. May I be happy. May I feel good. It's really the natural response of the mind. It's also amazing to think about how fast mind states blow in and blow out. can be in the best mood and all of a sudden something happens, boom. Uh, on a retreat, it's amazing. How many things can change your mind state in a second? You come into the lunch, you're hungry. You say, oh, tofu again, and the whole mind falls down. <laughs> and the, is it like, it's a very small thing. I was trying to tell that to somebody last week. Somebody had the best line yet. I said, did you ever notice I was making that same point about how mind states are so tenuous, they hang from one moment to the next as if one blow and the whole mind state blows over. So you could be in a really pleasant mood, or tranquil mood, good mood, and all of a sudden you come into work and there's a great pile of work that somebody has put on your desk or three people have put on your desk with impossible deadlines and you look at it and all of a sudden the mind falls down and it grumbles and it's irritable and it makes a whole story about this is a not good place to work. I knew I shouldn't be working here. Should have never taken this job. I should have moved to Albuquerque instead. And you can make a whole long story about it. And really, in a moment, just looking at the pile of paper there, fall into a whole hindrance attack. And I said, and then all of a sudden, one thing, one single thing could happen that could change your whole mood. And the person I was talking to said, you mean something like, Beep, Ed McMahon is on line two. <laughs> I thought that was the best line, isn't it? The people who don't know why the other people are laughing know that Ed McMahon is the person who calls you up when you've won the publisher's clearinghouse. 
to tell you that you've just won $2 million or whatever it is. That's the best. There's a great title for a book. Ed McMahon is online, too. <laughs> so I want to talk about working with the hindrances on retreat. This is the same, really, on retreat as in life. This is just a uh, rarefied, concentrated version of life. It's a terrific opportunity because you get to see them so clearly. There are five hindrance energies traditionally described. And we think, whoa, is that all? Seems to me I have millions of varieties of unhappy mind states. But when you think about them, they all fit into one of these five kinds of energies. And two pairs of them are in fact pairs and kind of opposites of each other. If you think of the energy of the mind just kind of moving around, it seems normal that the energy of the mind wouldn't be just uninterrupted, smooth. Sometimes it's an energy that's pulling. It's a yearning energy. It wants something. It doesn't sometimes even know what it wants, but it wants something. It's usually described in sensual terms about want something to eat, or I'd like someone to rub my back, or I wish I had a more comfortable pillow, or a warmer, next time I'm going to bring a warmer blanket to cover myself with, or something to make me more comfortable. And sometimes we really need a warmer blanket, and sometimes we're hungry. But sometimes if the mind is filled with bliss, we don't need any blankets, it's just not so cold. Sometimes the mind is just needing something, it's an incompleteness, it's looking around for stuff. It's the kind of an energy that uh, uh, just as one is finishing lunch, you think, uh, wonder what's going to be fatigue this afternoon. <laughs> it's kind of the mind reaching forward for the next hit of something interesting. And I wonder what they're going to talk about in the Dharma talk, because really the food and the Dharma talk are the only kind of stimulus inputs <laughs> here in the whole day. But it's planned that way because it's functional in terms of letting the mind become composed in our outside lives. The minds do not tend to composure because there's so much stimuli going on. I think of such a great faith in the possibilities of silence. I think we could all come here if we had enough time and not do any formal practice have a meditation hall and we could have silence and we could have plain good food just like we have and people could have the instructions do whatever you want sit walk eat when there's food sit when you want walk when you walk when you want take a shower lie on your bed and that's about all that's all we do here don't read write talk or do anything that stirs up the mind and stay in silence. I think it would, with time, work all by itself to let the mind settle down. I think the mind tends in the direction of settling down. The natural mind is not stirred up. Many years ago, I, uh, I remember seeing a, a, a wonderful interchange on the Larry King show. Larry King was interviewing a Swami in the Hindu tradition. And uh, he's a great interviewer. You know, he asks such wonderful questions. And he asked good questions, and the Swami was very good in his answers. And uh, it's, it's a kind of a difficult thing, because the Swami is representing another culture. And at that time, it was some years ago, an odd thing. Meditation is not so odd anymore. But And then people were phoning in, as they do, and. He was so clear in his answers and composed. And finally, um, Larry King leaned across the table to him and he looked at him and looked at him in his eyes and he said, how did he get it so quiet in there? And (laughs) 
And the Swami said, it is quiet in there. We just stir it up so much. If we stayed here long enough, we'd become clearer and clearer and clearer. We don't have that much time. So we have to do a technique that moves it along a little bit faster. In Vipassana, we use the technique of seeing clearly through each experience. We see its impermanence, we see its emptiness, we see its transiency. In this practice, we work to build up a level of concentration in the mind which will itself contain the antidotes, the dispellers of the mind clouders. So the first energy of mind clouding is that pulling energy. I need something. I need something more interesting to do. It's interesting. One of the instructions in this practice, particularly in metta practice, is uh, to pick metta objects that are pick people to send metta to who would not ordinarily bring up sexual arousal in you. A lot of people have asked about that particular instruction. Don't pick someone about whom you are likely to feel sexually aroused. Because it's true that as you begin to do metta practice, you begin to feel quite loving towards that person. And because metta practice is often accompanied by a heightened set of raptures, a heightened um, feeling of rapture in the body, delightful feelings in the body. And because we're often uh, particularly attuned to when we feel full of delightful feelings and we feel full of love to a certain person, erotizing that feeling, specifically locating it, as an erotic or a sexual feeling, it has the possibility of then bringing the mind to start all kinds of fantasies about what I specifically might do with that person, how I might meet that person, and all kinds of elaborate fantasies. It's an interesting instruction, too, because ultimately we get to be expanding the, the realm of people towards whom we send metta. And inevitably, it will include people of the kind that towards whom we would feel sexual arousal in all beings. Uh, So what about that? Can we have this instruction now and that instruction then? I think the real instruction is to not get, not mistake feelings that seem like erotic feelings for being erotic feelings with any story of any consequence. That if we feel um, delightful feelings in the body come up as we practice towards any being, that's what they are, delightful feelings that we should not really be thinking of or elaborating into stories. That's when we take an energy and make it into a story, and then use the story itself to cloud the mind and confuse it, because we think about it, and we wonder about it, and then we think about in our own life, how come, how can I find somebody, and really begin to uh, fill the mind with elaborate kinds of lustful constructions. So the, 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 um, the instruction itself, to pick someone where that's not likely to happen. You know, I tested that through the course of my practice. Uh, In the beginning, I did exactly the practice as my teacher told me to do it. Uh, And then as years went by, and I felt somewhat comfortable in the practice, I thought to myself, especially if I was now going to be giving that instruction to people, I'll field test that instruction. I'll see if it's true. so it's true. <laughs> now, it's not, that's not a bad thing that it's true because it's not necessarily a problem. It's just true. 
it's true and feeling warm and loving feelings especially with the body in a heightened state of arousal which it is with a rapture from concentration you feel stimulated in all of your body including the parts that are erotic It's interesting because you can actually use the energy of that if you don't get caught in it, make a story out of it to say, well, it's true, that's interesting. Now I use that energy to send metta to more people and more people and more people, but not to confuse it as a real thing that has to do with that person and that requires anything to be acted on or thought about further or elaborated in story. All of the kinds of energies that come up are not necessarily problems if we see them this is an energy it's really here what's the best skillful way to work with it one of the things that's often the, the ideas that is often put out as an antidote for lust in all realms here and out in the world is restraint this wouldn't be a good thing for me to do at this point I won't do it in the context of a retreat, the best restraint, I think, or an important restraint for myself, is a restraint from the elaboration in fantasy of any particular hindrance energy story that's going on. Some lust comes up about something, a person that's there or a person that's somewhere, or something that I could have when I get home. I'll redecorate my bedroom, okay? Now I'll start to design it. That's also a lust, not to do it here. Or on my way home, I'll stop in that restaurant because there they don't have tofu. Uh, but maybe this other restaurant is better and if I travel a half hour more, I'll get to that other restaurant. Those are all manifestations of lust, really. And what we can do is get involved in a long story about them. And the restraint is to say, this is a long story I'm now telling myself about essentially the presence of lust in the mind and body. So I'll just let it go and go back to saying my phrases. That's a skillful way to do it. Aversion is the um, uh, opposite polar energy to yearning. Yearning is the kind of I need it, I need it. And aversion is the kind of energy that says I don't want it. I'd like to get rid of it. I can't be happy unless this isn't here. Aversive energy comes in negativity, not liking, anger in life, irritability. Used to be one of my big embarrassments that metta got on my nerves. It's, a, it's like a not nice thing in spiritual circles to say metta gets on my nerves. It so sounds... <laughs> extremely unspiritual how can you say loving kindness practice gets on my nerves it's important that I tell you this story because it has to do with my beginning of my metta practice the only metta practice that I had done before my intensive practice was the kind of 20-minute metta practice that you do at the end of retreats and I didn't always have the biggest confidence in it because sometimes I enjoyed it very much, but in a guided meditation, there's always a little problem because the person guiding the meditation has no idea where everybody is in their particular place at that time. So it's kind of a hint to say, now visualize this, now visualize that, now open the heart to include even those people who have been difficult for you. and for people who are ending their period of vipassana practice in a wonderful state they can and for the people who are ending that particular period of practice in a more difficult state they can't and there's no way for whomever is leading the practice to know when that's why it's wonderful that we practice here together and everybody really has the instruction you move when you can from one meta object to the next do not push yourself to incorporate the next realm of beings until you're absolutely
composed and delighted and focused on these, this particular realm. Even if you stay with yourself or your benefactor for this entire week, that's fine. So in my early experience, which was those hits of metta, uh, just at the end of a retreat, I didn't really trust them because they didn't always work for me. And then I wondered if they really worked for the teachers. And I thought to myself, uh, either they are truly as composed and as loving and as spacious as they sound in this moment, and really are the most generous, spacious-hearted person in the world, and I'm in a bad place, so I don't feel good vis-a-vis them, so I already feel demoralized, they are spiritual and I am not. Or, they actually are just saying this, and they don't feel it, and then they're hypocritical, and I don't feel good about that either. So, that's why Metta got on my nerves. But, there came a period of time where, for reasons too long and involved to do in this talk, I was uh, in a pretty distraught place in my mind, in my body, in my practice, in my life, for reasons too complex to go into, not necessary either. But partly they had to do with um, just really uh, unusual and um, uncomfortable body and mind states that I um, saw to be a reflection of my practice or a result of my practice. And so I was even more unhappy because I thought that all these years of Vipassana practice in which I had great faith were going to have in fact led me down some garden path and get me into some terrible place. Come to think of it, I must have been in a really bad place because metta got on my nerves and I was losing confidence in the Vipassana. But there I was in the desert at a retreat center doing my practice beside myself, not feeling good, not in the mind, not in the body. And it came one evening where I was so filled with distressing energy that I thought, cannot sit one further moment on the Zafu. This is it. I quit. And I went to my room, which was a quarter of a mile away. I walked with determination to my room. It was early. Everybody was still in the hall. Took off my clothes. I got in my bed. I pulled the blankets literally over me. And really from somewhere, not from planning, from the depths of intuitive grace or whatever it was, I said, may I be peaceful, may I be happy, may I be free of suffering, may I be peaceful, may I be happy, may I be free of suffering. Now, in fact, when we give metta instructions, we say, relax, bring the mind, the attention in a relaxed way to these phrases. Don't hurry, don't push, relax. I was not relaxed. I was frantic. But the result of the frenzy was I was beside myself. I was up against the wall that my mind did not wander. The attention was riveted on those phrases. And I didn't think to myself, it would have been wonderful if I could say I knew to think to myself, really do the metta, Sylvia. I didn't think that at all. I just did it. It was grace. I did it, I did it, I did it, I did it. And not too long afterwards, I began to feel myself a little bit relaxed. And I began to feel a little bit warmer in my body. And the terrible level of excitation in the mind and body that was going on subsided. And I thought to myself, hey, this means something. Not so long after, I came to Barry to do intensive metta practice. And uh, Sharon is my metta teacher, you all know that. That's the most dramatic part of the introduction to metta. I probably should tell you one other part of it. I consulted someone who I um, 
admire a lot. Um, a teacher in, in the Buddhist tradition, who I still admire a lot, um, about uh, my decision to come here and practice metta at that time. And I told the whole history of my story and what was going on with me and my experience in the desert. And, uh, and my experience in the desert, which was very ameliorative, made me feel better. There you go. Better word. Made me feel better. Was not the end of my story. I had a far way to go in my story. And that person said, no, I wouldn't do any metta practice if I were you because you probably had all that stuff happening with you because you concentrated too hard. And metta's a concentration practice, so I don't think you should go. So I said, thank you very much. And I left. And I came anyway. Because I felt like it would be the right thing to do. It is the natural antidote for all kinds of distressing mind and body feelings. One of the factors of a concentrated mind is a factor of calm. And calm was probably what I needed most at that point in order to um, lessen the amount of tremendous energy in the body. Tremendous energy and lack of energy are the next two of the difficult mind states. They're really, again, polar mirror images of themselves. The mind fills with energy and the mind empties of energy and it fills and it empties. It's not that there's anything wrong with that, the mind in which that happens. That's kind of the natural cycles of mind, like it's day and it's night and it's day and it's night and the body is energetic and then it's tired. And it goes from one, into one to the other. I think we somehow have the idea that the mind will be all uh, restless and stirred up from being in the world and will come here and it'll quiet down, 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 down to clear and it'll stay there. But it quiets down, 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 and it keeps on going to sleepy, sleepy, sleepy. It just does. And down here it's cloudy and torporous and up here. And then it responds from there. So you say, okay, now it's waking up. It should stay right here, clear. But then it gets all excited again. It goes back and forth and back and forth. Maybe as we stay here over days, not so enormously back and forth, but nevertheless, back and forth. And the excited level of the mind, when the mind is filled with excited energy, and restless energy, too much energy, it starts to create worries for itself. Like, I didn't say metta for every single person I know. And I forgot that person. I was saying my whole list of relatives and I forgot that relative. <laughs> A lot of people thought that today. Uh, that they get sort of, I'm saying all my friends, but I forgot that friend and I forgot that one. It doesn't matter. You could just say yourself the whole week. It's all beings from the beginning to the end. We are choosing particular beings for different technical reasons. It makes us interested in the practice. It breaks down our resistances to the people that we've had difficulties with. All kinds of reasons for choosing different people and for not just sitting down and saying, okay, all beings. But essentially, it's all beings. So it doesn't matter if you leave off somebody. And it's just the mind in its own restlessness that's making up that worry. I left out so-and-so, I didn't do that. And the mind in the torpor is really funny in metta practice because the mind in torpor uh, loses the phrases and it says, may I be free of safety or may you be full of suffering <laughs> and, and all kinds of things that you really don't mean to say. But you just, it's, just, it's just that the mind has fallen asleep. It doesn't have any energy in it. And the, the inspiration to keep on saying keeps on happening, but it's kind of blurred, you know. You know, when, when you're just falling asleep or you're with someone who's just falling asleep and you talk to them, 
and they talk back out of that hypnagogic state that it doesn't mean anything at all, it's kind of mumbling. That's what happens is the mind mumbles when it doesn't have any energy in it. But those are just two mind states, they have a lot of energy and a little energy. And when we're here, all kinds of ways of, of uh, just easily working with them. The mind, when, when you find that you're saying ridiculous things, open your eyes and look around. First of all, that stimulus wakes up the mind. And look at people, even people, especially people that you don't know, and make metta resolves for them. It's interesting. So it wakes up the mind. Oh, now make metta here, metta there. There are 80 metta objects that you could work on here. So it's interesting to the mind. And when the mind is filled with restlessness, especially in a metta retreat, it's not so hard to work with. You can, for instance, say, okay, I'm just going to go back to myself or my benefactor in terms of resolves. Or I'll just go for a walk and walk off my restlessness a little bit. You don't have to fight with it. I think the, the, the biggest lesson that I learned after many years of practice is that fighting with mind hindrances just made them worse. You get more and more tangled up in them. It's kind of like if you step into taffy with one foot and then you fall over and then you fall in with the other hand the other, and you try to get out and you keep stepping up and down you get all, it's kind of like a you remember uh, there used to be cartoons like Daffy Duck falling into Taffy and then trying to get out. And the more you try to waddle around, the more you get tied up in the Taffy. It's hindrance. If you think of it as a, kind of like a rainstorm in the mind, you just kind of sit it out. It's just weather. It'll pass. It'll blow in and out. There are like helpful things that you can do about it. If it's raining out, we can come inside. If there's a tremendous amount of restlessness in the mind, you can go have a cup of tea and sit quietly for a while. There are things that you can do. Essentially, it'll pass. The last of the hindrances, and one that's been coming up for people in different ways today, and I hope that, in fact, all the things that I've said will in some way let you know about doubt, but I want to specifically talk about the hindrance of doubt because it's so hard to recognize. Doubt, um, doubt is, is, is a kind of an insidious energy. You can feel all the other energies in your body. You know when you yearn and you know when you are aversive because the body tenses up. And you know when you're sleepy and you know when you're restless. But doubt is kind of a slippery energy. You don't feel it in your body. And it masquerades as a thought. I can't do this. This is a dumb practice. I should have done it another time. Wasn't right to come in the winter. I should have first done the Vipassana and then do this. All kinds of undermining thoughts that aren't true. Of course you can do this because there's nothing to do. This is the natural state of the mind. And it's just not a true thought. That we look like we're doing something, but what we're doing is reminding ourselves that there's nothing to do. If we relax, the natural state of the mind would be spacious and loving and compassionate. So everybody can do it. And every time you hear that doubtful thought in the mind, it's a lie. It's just not true. funny how that catches us up though. Be careful about the doubt thoughts because they masquerade themselves so cleverly that I've gotten caught in them. All kinds of thoughts like uh, it's the next to the last day. Ah. Uh, I've had so many awarenesses and insights. I doubt I can have another one. I should go home now then. Okay, out. <laughs> you have to watch that sort of stuff. Every thought that, that looks like it's going, every energy that looks like it might manifest in an action, 
You need to think about it for a while and see if the energy passes and then the need to do the action might pass as well. There are what are called natural enemy antidotes to the mind hindrances. And I think of them, I think I'll tell you about the natural antidotes and the ones I've told you about, about open your eyes and look around and go for a walk and have some tea, then fall into the category of unnatural antidotes. And I don't want to suggest that because they're very functional antidotes. And I want to suggest that you use them wisely and skillfully. But um, I'd like to tell you about uh, the natural antidotes that are in the samadhi state itself. Because it's kind of like a homeopathic remedy. It's nice to think about. If in a vipassana practice, the antidote to all of the hindrances is clear seeing, is insight in knowing that they're ghosts and illusions and appearances with no substance. The antidote in samadhi practice works like this. The mind has can be in different levels of concentration the point of continually making resolves and I really want to um, encourage you to be very steadfast in making resolves just all the time please don't make them so complicated don't say long and involved arrive at some set of phrases that you feel these are my phrases and then just do them do them while you sit while you walk while you shower while you eat and while you walk around while, just do them all the time I, I enjoy when I'm really intent on practicing when I get up in the middle of the night as I always do and go and come while I'm going and coming to the bathroom I'm thinking to myself my resolves and I know that I feel really good about that, that really I'm practicing all the time. So I want to tell you that as an extra moment of practice. Not a moment passes that you don't do the phrases. If you do that, I promise you that the mind will become quite concentrated. That's called a state of samadhi. State of samadhi has five qualities to it. One of those qualities is the ability of the attention to aim itself quite clearly at whatever phenomenon is its object. You know, so when the words get all blurry and we're saying all kinds of odd phrases and all kinds of odd resolves, that's because the aim of the mind is clumsy. When samadhi is present, aim is clear, and we say the phrases, and they're not a problem and they're clear to us. The natural antidote to torpor in the mind. When samadhi is present, the attention is able to sustain itself in what's ever happening. Can stay with a phrase from the beginning to the end and then let it go. The quality of sustaining in the mind turns out to be the natural antidote to doubt doubt falls away. Samadhi has in it a level of rapture. It manifests in different ways, but usually in a kind of delightful feeling in the mind and the body. Feeling of lightness, feeling of light, feeling of tingling, feelings of thrills, of pleasure. It's not possible to sustain aversion in a mind that's full of rapture. It's absolutely the antidote to aversion. Can you imagine, can you think of a time when the mind has in your life when you've been totally thrilled and exhilarated? In that moment, all aversion falls away. You forgive everyone, everything. Forgive your entire life for whatever it was just to allow you to be up to that moment. Another quality of samadhi is the quality of calm. And calm is by itself the antidote to restlessness in the mind. Another quality of samadhi 
is the quality of one-pointedness, one-pointed focus. One-pointed focus is the antidote to the mind of lust. The mind of lust is what is the mind that's looking around for what can I get, what can I get, what can I get, I'm, where, where is something else that I could have that would be pleasant. One-pointed focus, grasping and clinging and needing, falls away just by itself. So you don't have to worry about which antidote should I, which antidote should I use now for this aversion that's coming up, or I don't, I'm not sure I'm remembering the right antidote for this or that. You don't have to remember the right antidote. Just have to bring the attention steadfastly to the saying of the phrases. It's a very simple job. Bring the attention resolutely kindly, resolutely, sincerely to each of those phrases as they come up, being with them with as much attention as you can be. Sometimes, of course, when we're walking around or we're doing our yogi job, we're just saying the phrases. We're not attending to them with total attention because we're washing pots or washing floors. But we're saying, When you're sitting in here, is an opportunity to really say the phrase with full and complete attentiveness. I like to feel that I am drawing on every bit of attention power that I have and bringing it to each phrase and holding it and letting it go and holding it and letting it go and holding it and letting it go. So throughout the day, the saying of the phrases has a different quality It's different in here than in walking. And it's different in sitting and in walking than in washing pots because it needs to be. But make the best use of every moment by the saying of phrases. The very saying itself makes sure that other kinds of diverting um, thoughts that tend to break up concentration don't begin to fill the mind. You fill the mind with these particular thoughts. That's what tends to deepen samadhi. When you're here, you can use the time of being here to really bring attention to each phrase, really um, cleaving to the phrase, caressing the phrase, making yourself as close as you can to that phrase, and then letting it go. Doing that, which you don't have to remember what instruction now or later. It's the same instruction all the time. Bring as much attention as possible to the saying of the phrases in the least distracted way as much of the time as you can. And in the meantime, do the rest of the day around it. It's the whole instruction. It will by itself build samadhi. Samadhi itself will build the ability of the attention to aim and sustain itself will build rapture, it'll build calm, it'll build a one-pointed focus in the mind which will be the antidotes to all the hindrances. It's remarkable. I always think sometimes of, of saying, when, I said, when I've said all that, see, it's very scientific. And so it's not at all magic. But actually it's magic. I think what I mean is it's wonderful. So let's sit for one minute together. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 1, 1995.
It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.